Beth Knapp, thank you very much for coming in to the podcast episode today. Sure. We say, saw you have a couple books of poetry there. I brought a couple books, too, oh, yeah. to talk about. I started reading this one that I know you're teaching right now, mm-hmm. Sing Unburied Sing. Mm-hmm. I only made it through the first couple of pages so far. I just got distracted. But um, I love the way Jesmyn Ward, I, I think, creates a mood mm-hmm. in her writing. Mm-hmm. It seems like from what I've read by her, Salvage the Bones, um, I guess that's the only one I've read. But she she's very good at creating this, I guess, atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And it seems very similar in Salvage the Bone and this one as well. I don't know exactly how to describe it but it it has to do with the i think the the childhood's experience mm-hmm. of the adult world maybe mm-hmm. and yeah. um i don't know and just like realizing things for the first time so the beginning of this book starts with the the, the bleeding of the goat or yeah. the killing of the goat yeah. and it's just the perspective of trying to understand what is happening i think yeah yeah um, first of all, like shout out to the Gilman Library, which I think you and I are like the two biggest fans in the upper school of Gilman Library. So I see that you got that from the library. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, it's like my favorite thing. I don't take, know. How to take just... pride in the amount of books you check out and don't read. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> but it feels so fun to take them out. That's when I know I'm a really big nerd. Um, so they're set in the same place, right? She's so, um, Jasmine Ward is is such a, uh, I guess, like a disciple of Faulkner in that way, right? And, and her worlds are in the same place. Um, and it's a fictionalization of where she's from, mm-hmm. right? So I think, like, the place uh, is so palpable to her, and so it becomes palpable to us. Mm-hmm. Have I told you about how I went to her hometown? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, like, kind of slightly stalked her to <laughs> <laughs> figure out where she lives and um see what she's seeing as she's writing these books and it's pretty fascinating what was it like going there and what is her hometown um she is uh it's delille mississippi mm-hmm. it's um, kind of near bay st louis and not too far from new orleans um and so in her books she calls it bois sauvage um uh, is like kind of a fictional um version of it and so it's this it's this tiny little like rural um, kind of swampy bayou like um, town and there isn't really even like a too much of a town um, but kind of just being there and seeing um, like a playground that's kind of run down with a basketball court that like figures into both salvage the bones and this mm-hmm. you know places that are just um, it was really cool to be there um, and to and to see it um, and the way that I really imagined it and reading it did you go to this place um, because you're teaching her, or was this? Yeah, was, yeah. Were you in New Orleans and just decided to stop by? Um, it was a, a little of both. Um, we also did New Orleans on that trip, but yeah, um, because I was really, I'm really interested in on the Gulf Coast. Um, I've been interested in the Gulf Coast like post Katrina for a while, and um, the way that the Mississippi Gulf Coast was kind of ignored in favor of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of that comes out in her nonfiction and fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like the the child, like Esh and Salvage the Bones and Jojo and Sing Unburied Sing, um, trying to understand or navigate the adult world really without um, too much adult help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I think there's something really identifiable about that, about like trying to figure out like the 
um, the difficulties of the world on your own. And particularly for Jojo and Esh, those are comp- those those issues are complicated by where they're born and um, you know where they go to school and poverty and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. In this one specifically, and I only am speaking on the first 15, 20 pages of it, but you're thrown into a situation that's uh, pretty violent and yeah. kind of you're trying to figure it out mm-hmm. at, at first. And it's really the same experience, I think, as a young person trying to go through a situation. I don't know. She she does a really good job matching that experience in her writing yeah. or making that real. Isn't that fascinating, too, because it's stuff that she knows as, a, as an adult writer, right, that then she can write the character having not right, conveying to us the way he doesn't understand things mm-hmm. or what he's learning. And in Sing on Buried Sing, it's um, alternating chapters, um, mainly from his voice and then his mother's voice. And his mother is drug addicted and abusive. And um, so he kind of is without her guidance. Um, and um, I think Sing Unburied Sing really stretches um, the empathy of the reader mm-hmm. um, in hearing from both of those voices. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing when we had the um, speaker. What was her name last two weeks ago? Come, um, the poet come. Oh yeah, right. When she was talking about the teenage experience, yes. I think it's amazing how you can write about. I guess the first time you encountered mm-hmm. something or experienced it in such clarity as yeah. an adult. Yeah. Well, and and I was really. Um, identifying with the way she talked about music remember i can't remember her name and i feel really bad it was kate yes thank Mm -hmm. you katie malton right so she um talked about the music that you listen to as a teenager is the music that you hold on to like for the rest of your life and that's certainly true for me yeah like i was like i wanted to ask her like more about uh, a a soundtrack like wouldn't it be cool if she told us about like a soundtrack to her day or Mm -hmm. i don't know i think about that a lot if we're walking around you know in our life what's the what's playing in the background right yeah yeah that was that was interesting yeah um so how i guess are you reading this still right now or mm-hmm, okay mm-hmm. how's that going it's good um i think like i said in terms of what the the novel so i'm reading it with my 12th graders and award-winning novels um it's it's difficult um and it's difficult because it's it's can be like scary and violent and and um harsh Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there is a lot of stretching that that readers and students have to do in in accessing that. But um, I have a sticker on my uh, laptop that says uh, "Practice Radical Empathy," and so I think that this is a text that really asks us to step into that. Um, but it also leads us to a lot of really good conversations about parenthood and growing up and yeah, place. People say that a lot about reading, like mm-hmm. why you why you read is. Or, or people who read become more empathetic through yeah. their reading. Do yeah. you think that's true? What's interesting is that I'm trying to, I was just referring to this um, article or study with my students and I forgot to look up where it's from, but when a study has been done about reading fiction, um, it's, it's particularly literary fiction. Reading literary fiction um, uh, makes us more empathetic, which I think is really interesting, right? So I guess in a way, like reading like high quality, complicated texts then leads us to be more empathetic people mm-hmm. i i believe that and i and i hope it's true right mm-hmm. um because i think that's part of what my work is as a teacher mm-hmm. i don't know if i've ever um 
thought about that question but i've just heard it said yeah i feel like reading has made me more aware i guess that Mm. is what it is more aware Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. other people's experiences and i guess that is what empathy is yeah that was gonna be my question back to you is there a difference between like what's the the gulf between awareness and empathy right Mm -hmm. you can be aware of something and not necessarily like feel along with someone but i think awareness is definitely like on the road toward empathy right Mm -hmm. yeah and i think you especially when you follow a fictional character and you know a lot about the character you give them the benefit of the doubt or you understand their experiences on a deeper level Mm -hmm. i really like speaking of george saunders who wrote this other one that you teach yeah uh, there's a part of his, what is the book that I taught it about the short stories? Tenth of December, is it that one? N- no, The Swim in, has a strange title that has to do with um, Gooseberries by Chekhov, but it's a collection of eight Russian short stories. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. And then he goes through and analyzes each one on a deep level. And one of the stories, I think it's the first one, is called In the Cart by Chekhov. Mm. And it follows this woman, and I forget her name, as a Russian name, but follows her through a couple of days. And you know every single thing about her life. And I feel like there's one part where Saunders, and this always struck me as amazing, is that he talks about how following the character through the ups and downs of a couple of days, and you know everything there is about the person, is almost similar to like why people talk about, you know, how God loves every single person mm-hmm. because God sees everything there is about you. He knows you, your story from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And as a reader, if you know a character's story mm-hmm. throughout a certain amount of time, even if they're a bad character or there's something that, that they have a flaw in their personality or character, you know so much about them that you still love the character right which is interesting well and it doesn't work that way in real life right i mean that's where like this the stretching has to happen or you think about as teachers when a student walks into our room like that we're only accessing a fraction of their day and so if we're reading a short story about them we'd know all of the things that happened up at that point and so maybe we'd extend them more grace or generosity or empathy when they walk in the room right but that's not the way human interaction works Mm -mm. so maybe that is the answer to like how fiction right gives us empathy because we know more mm-hmm, mm-hmm. your immediate reaction is why are you sleeping or right. on your computer in my class and you right. don't know the whole right. stretch of the past week right right or everything that's led up to that point yeah yeah i don't know it kind of maybe gives some pause mm-hmm. in, in my best moments it gives me some pause to think about that yeah what um what are you reading on your own right now? You have a stack of poetry collections. Uh, what yeah. have you really enjoyed in this collection? Um, so I, st- I started a Master's of Fine Arts this summer, um, and I am a poet, and I was writing a lot of poetry this summer. So one of my goals um, for the school year is to read more collections. Um, as a believer that the more you read, the better writer you are, right? And so if I want to be a better poet, like I'm reading more poems. Um, so there are some favorites here, but I just saw a poet, um, Ocean Vong, um, last Thursday at Loyola. He came oh, to really? speak. Yeah. Um, and I really love his, um, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. Have you read that? I've read most of it. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think about that, um, mm-hmm. novel a lot. And I heard an amazing podcast on On Being with Ocean Vong where he, it was just like so brilliant. 
Um, so he has a new poetry collection here, Time is a Mother. Um, and I uh, really enjoyed being in his presence. Mm-hmm. Um, he's eccentric and brilliant and thoughtful. Um, and I'm carrying with me like that he talked about um, that his vocation is teaching and not writing. He said that writing is just an act, which I thought was really interesting. He teaches at NYU. And then he's really talking about like um, embracing a, a radical okayness, he said, that he's trying to be radically okay in his life, which I really loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the rest of these are, are women that, I'm, that I adore and that I'm reading. Kate Bear has a new collection actually out today that I want to go get at the Ivy later. Maggie Smith is a favorite poet of mine. She wrote Good Bones, right? She did. Yeah, it's she a good did. poem. It is a great poem, yeah. Um, I follow her on Instagram. She's fantastic. Um, Amanda Gorman, um, who is on my office door. And then this last one is, um, I can't talk about the trees without the blood and by Tiana Clark, who is my poetry professor this summer, um, who's incredible and really, um, supportive. So, um, I just kind of keep dipping in and out of these works of these fantastic people. So tell me a little bit more about the experience this summer writing Mm -hmm. poetry and Mm -hmm. taking a few classes, right? Yeah. Um, what is, so it's the university. It's Sewanee. Sewanee. Yeah. The university of the South, right. Mm -hmm. in Sewanee, Tennessee, um, it is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Um, and you know, we've been to Breadloaf and it's gorgeous there, but it, it rivals. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So. There are a lot of people from Swanee at Breadloaf. Yeah, yeah. Because it's the extension. It's like once Swanee's over, they're like, what do we do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Go to Vermont in the summer. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so I took two classes, one a poetry workshop and one like a um, poetry forms and theory class. So one, you know, more creative and one more analytical. Um, and it was over six weeks. Um, and I lived on campus in Tennessee and uh, read a lot and wrote a lot and um, it was a really valuable personal and creative experience for me and I feel like my writing got a lot better. I had an amazing workshop um, of poets who gave me really good feedback so um, it was really it was a stretch and it was hard but I really liked it. Yeah. This might be a tough question but what kinds of things did you learn maybe Mm -hmm. that you didn't go going into it about poetry because sometimes I think that the best poetry is almost words put together that uh, you, you just can't learn. Like I couldn't take a class to yeah. learn how to put these words together. Sometimes when I've, you know, and I'm sure you experience this with little kids, but when I am doing the tennis sessions with lightning or doing a lesson with little kids, they'll say something and put two words together or a mm-hmm. string of words together that is poetry that I don't think that, I don't know, it'd be very hard for someone to actually teach me that. It's yeah. almost an unexpected formulation right. of thoughts. So there are a couple of things, there are a lot of things I think about that. But one of the things is about even teaching writing as like a high school teacher. I'm not sure that I'm effective at teaching writing. Like I, I know how to try and I know how to give feedback and I know how to, you know, give advice about organization. But I do also think that there are just people who are strong writers. Um, there's something there's something about the way their brain works. And that doesn't mean that like a 10th grader who studies with me doesn't improve over the course of the year. Of course he does, right? But I think that there are, are writers who come into my classroom for whom like stringing words together is just the way their brain works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a part of poetry for me that is like that. It's kind of just the way that my brain works. Um, I also am, um, 
I, I observe a lot and I am really interested in kind of just like the absurdity <laughs> of life. Um, and then, but there are things this summer that I learned to think about a lot. Um, I learned to think about like concretely, like how the title of a poem like moves me into the body of a poem. Um, I learned to think about really critically and Tiana, um, my workshop professor had us thinking a lot about line breaks and like, what does it mean where the line breaks and why does the line break there? And is that word strong enough for the end of a line? Um, I thought a lot about um, clarity. You know, there are lots of things that make sense in my brain. And once they come out, like on my dock, might not. So how to be as clear as possible. Um, so I think those are, there are like concrete things that I think as a person who notices and enjoys writing that then can like hone what I'm doing. Did you find that you had a lot of time or um, inspiration this summer to, to mm -hmm. write or mm -hmm. was it hard in a pretty remote area to, I guess, come up with ideas or was it easy for you? Um, I had lots and lots of ideas and I think I had lots and I lots of ideas because I was away from home in a remote area and for the first three of the six weeks I was by myself. My family wasn't with me. Um, so there was not a whole lot else for me to do other than like write and figure out what I thought about things and what I wanted to say, um, which was a huge gift and also incredibly difficult, right? Mm -hmm. To spend that amount of time in one's head and thinking about thinking um, mm -hmm. is a lot. Um, and then that was a different challenge when my family came, which was wonderful to have them with me for the second half, but then trying to carve out the psychological space um, to be a creative person um, is something that I continue to struggle with. Did you have a routine in terms of your writing or did it come to you mm -hmm. unexpectedly? Sometimes I feel like, you know, yeah. it just hits you when you're walking around or yeah. you're interacting with people and you have to make note of it mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. I don't know. If I carve out 30 minutes, it might not be the time right. to write. And that's sometimes what I say in class too is, you know, I, I'll give you guys an assignment and you're not necessarily going to be able to write this by sitting down at yeah. 10 o'clock at night. Right. You might need to think about it, have it in the back of your mind and write a note down as you're yeah. walking somewhere. Right. If you looked at like my voice memos on my phone, it's just like chock full of little, you know, um, notes that I'm making to myself as I'm noticing things. So that's a habit that I am in. Um, but I, I did have a routine in that like I had classes and assignments and being held accountable in that academic way is really helpful for me as like a person who loves school. Um, and then I think there are a lot of things like this. Like once you start doing it, it's like the faucet gets turns on, turned on, right? And it just kept coming. Mm -hmm. um, so once I kind of started and got into this place where I was writing and noticing and journaling, um, a lot more happened. Mm -hmm. And it helps to be around a lot of people who yeah. are doing the same thing. That's right. Right. And people who I'm looking around and being like, oh, my gosh, they're so good. Right. Their work is so good. And the competitive part of me. Right. Wanting to be like show that I can do it, too. Did you do poetry readings in, in front of people this summer? Was it collaborative? Um, I did not do any poetry readings in front of people. I wasn't quite ready to do that. Yeah. Some of my classmates did. But um, every week I shared a new poem with a workshop and then it was like critiqued and talked about in class. Mm -hmm. So there was like an audience of people looking at my work every week mm -hmm. how how large is that pro how many people are there i think there were 12 
which is a little bit big for a poetry workshop, but I think there were 12 of us, um, and everyone submitted a poem every week, and then we would, you know, give lots of feedback and talk about everybody's poem um, in the last meeting of the class every week. And how big is the entire, I guess, summer program? And it's over the course of how many summers? Um, it's four summers. Four summers. Four summers and then like a school year for to finish a thesis. Um, it's a lot smaller than Breadloaf. Bread I think maybe around 75 students total. But there are poets and um, creative nonfiction writers and short story writers and novelists, stuff like that. So different disciplines. And it was all focused on poetry for you pretty for much? For me, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you always know that you were into writing poetry or was is this something that happened recently for you or i've written poetry for a long time um and in college i wrote and i was in a poetry workshop um in college and um but i kind of i kind of lost it along the way and then um during the pandemic when um i I needed something Right. And um, I remember talking to Patrick Hastings about like how we were kind of going to get through that weird like hybrid pandemic year where we just all are in our offices and, you know, not being able to associate with anyone. And he um, he challenged me. He's like, you see if you can write 20 poems this year. Mm-hmm. And I exceeded that goal. Um, and it was just like really cool to have someone else be like, maybe try this. And it was a coping mechanism and something I rediscovered. Yeah, you must need someone to hold you accountable Absolutely. sometimes. Absolutely. So Sam Cheney's doing that for me now. He's giving me deadlines for poems that I need to submit to him, um, and that's really helpful. Yeah. It's so easy to just get distracted with other it things. Is. It is. And I think the really the big distinction, and I think about George Saunders with this, or, or Jasmine Ward too, is um, that great writers are really disciplined, right? Um, and it's not something that they can or choose to let go of. Hmm. Yeah. Something that I've been thinking of teaching this year um, is that I teach a leadership character class. Mm-hmm. And I think even in my junior English class, when we talk about the American dream a lot, is the the one phrase that everyone comes up with and talks about in class is hard work and how important hard work mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the most successful people work the hardest. And hard work, I just hear it all day long from students. And I think that that phrase becomes almost meaningless sometimes because in life, everyone who's existing as an adult is working hard. I mean, they're trying for the most part. But I think uh, grit is almost a better word to talk about and to understand and to put into your life because... You know, you could work really hard, and at the end of the day, you're tired. You want to go to bed. Mm-hmm. You don't have the grit or, like, the click discipline, whatever you want to yeah. call it, to say, I need to write my poem and get that done. Yeah. For me, for whoever's holding me accountable. Right. It's just a different type of right skill. I don't know what to call it. Yeah, and I think like, I like discipline a lot in that conversation. It's like me, I'm holding myself accountable, right, um, and I'm – I'm focused on what's important for me, right? Um, I think that's a distinction between hard work. And I also think, of course, like, you know, being in the right place at the right time and luck and all of that plays a part in it that, like, I think it's part of our American identity to believe that it's all hard work. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I just I don't think it it always or often is mm-hmm. all hard work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's some of it. Like you, right. you've got to you've got to work hard. You've you've got to bear down and get your stuff done. But it's not the whole story. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, 
So I talked to you a little bit about, um, I guess, Gilman and maybe some observations that you've mm-hmm. had this year with the boys at the school. And um, I'm curious because I've been thinking about the cell phones and how often mm-hmm. I see cell phones and how addicted we all are to yeah. our cell phones and social media. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the cell phone, on social media, mm-hmm. and especially when you observe high school students not becoming more addicted because I think we all are in some degree more reliant on our phones. But I, for instance, collect the phones at the beginning of the class. I do too, yeah. Which we're supposed to do this year. But if I didn't ask them to put their phone in the bin as they walk in, they'd be just sitting on their phones and not interacting with each other. Mm And I don't know, that kind of rubs me as... Mm-hmm. Sad. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know, but I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on observing the cell phone amongst high schoolers, amongst yeah. the Gilman community. Um, so I do collect cell phones, and I'm glad to actually have the um, that as a blanket policy. So it's not just a policy in my classroom. Right? That feels really good to me. Something to lean on. Um, and I don't think it, that it minimizes all distraction. Right? They still have iMessage on there laptops or whatever, um, but I feel like I can control that a little bit more. Um, I know that I I have a hard time limiting myself on my cell phone. I have a hard time limiting myself just like mindlessly like scrolling through Instagram, which is I think my addiction of choice on my phone, you know? Um, so I really, I, I, I think I understand it. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I also know that I use it sometimes as like um, a way for me to, um, I don't know, like step back from life and just like shut down for a couple minutes in a way that maybe I need. So I really, I really get it, and I don't want to come out swinging at like the kids who are doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do worry about the way that it shifts, particularly social media, the way that it shifts like their perception of themselves, mm-hmm. and the way so much can be like um, anonymous. And I think in a lot of ways we are, we are not kind to each other when we can be anonymous Mm -hmm. so those are the big things that i think about with them and with my own children right because now i have a middle schooler so i'm thinking about like how does he access all of this too it's not going anywhere yeah and you can't really i mean i don't know you can't really tell your middle school kid that they can't be they can't be the only one without i mean you can but it's very it's a very hard decision i imagine for parents to say you're the only kid at your school without a cell phone or you're the only kid without TikTok. Right. But on the other hand, everyone has access to these platforms and there's a lot of bad that goes mm-hmm. with that. So mm-hmm. it's just a kind of in between a rock and a hard place, yeah. I would imagine, as a parent. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, the tension between um, wanting a child to like fit in and be social and also like wanting him to like be healthy. <laughs> and I'm not sure that the one can be fully healthy with like all that's available to us on our phones. And I think a lot of the socializing is happening on the Absolutely. phones. They're, I mean, they're not just sitting there scrolling. I think a lot of the time they're texting each other yeah. and talking to each other. Right. But I don't know. It's just a brand new frontier for everyone. And it's really hard to make a decision as to what's the right thing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also I've read, interestingly, like 
adolescents right now are more risk averse like than my generation was right and a lot of that has to do with this way that they're interacting with each other virtually right so they're not doing as many drugs they're not having as much sex they're not like you know engaging in all those risky behaviors that like my generation um engaged in so there is some like level of safety around Mm -hmm. it um it's always a a balance i don't know Mm -hmm. and they're i don't think they're getting enough or as much sleep maybe i think that's another thing because most teenagers report that they sleep with their phone right next to them Mm -hmm. so it's the last thing they see when they go to bed and the first thing they see when they wake up yeah um you know besides the effects of the blue light or whatever i think you're just so it it's just the first thing you see the last thing you see when you go to bed attached in that kind of way too yeah Yeah. so that affects sleep do you have your cell phone next to your bed well, I think I'm, I, I mean, I'm so close to just get, getting rid of this thing. Yeah. And I think I'm different than most people because I've got this Google Pixel and I take a lot of crap from people who say you've got the green messages. Yeah, yeah. I just really don't, I, I don't know what has happened with me, but because I used to have an iPhone and I used to be pretty uh, active on Instagram and yeah. whatever, but I've gotten off pretty much everything but Twitter. I like Twitter because it informs me a little bit and I've like yeah. seeing what people post. Um, I just said to my advisory just before I came here that I've learned that I was kind of lamenting, you know, if Twitter goes away or whatever, if it shifts, because I've learned so much from Twitter. And they all laughed at me, like, what would you learn from Twitter? I'm like, oh, my gosh, over over the last 10 years, like what the voices I've been introduced to, and I've, I've learned so much. Learned so much, and it, it's useful for me in my classes too because yeah. I'll bring up a conversation That's starter right. or a – Right. painting I see on there. I mean, right. it just depends on who you follow. That's if you right. just follow, I don't know. Yeah. If you follow actual people who are reporting their opinions and different poetry, there's a lot right. of poetry yeah, on Twitter. Is. I'm sure yeah. there is on Instagram too. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot you can learn from it. Absolutely. So there, there, there are good things for sure. It's just, uh, it's addicting. It's all made to addict you and keep you on there. Yeah, and again, like I have my, I plug my phone in next to my bed, and it's my alarm, and it like so I look at it first thing in the morning. I mean, I like I know I do all of these things that I'm like, don't want the children to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very hard. <laughs> it's, it's very, very hard. hard. Yeah, that's my thing too. Is like I would be the first person on a flip phone. I think if I didn't yeah. need Google Maps and Spotify, right. like I want oh. my music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But social media for me, I don't think is is an issue i just don't i don't really care anymore about especially tiktok i just don't even see what the fascination is really i saw a meme recently that was like i'm um i'm so old that i look at tiktok on instagram like all of everything from tiktok that i see is like reposted on instagram yeah that's where i am in my life (laughs) i'm trying to understand what what the youth sees in in tiktok though I mean, I guess it just, it's funny. I will say that yeah. there's like, you can get a kick out of reading or, yeah. or looking at the videos made on there, but I don't, know. I don't know. I think we're always lamenting, right? As humans, we're always lamenting like, oh, this thing is dying or, or this generation is worse or, you know, and I'm, I'm just not, I think there are things to be concerned about, but I also have like a really a great deal of faith in this, you know, these kids who we're teaching right now. And um, 
the ways that they're thinking about things and interacting and the ways that they want to shape the world, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that it can be used, all of these technologies can be used for like connection and change. Mm -hmm. I think so too. Um, What else outside of literature, poetry, and social Mm -hmm. media, I guess, and phones, have you been thinking a lot recently as you're at school, in the classroom, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on campus, just observing? as you said. Yeah. Um, so I, I know I've told you this, but like I, and this is a really small thing, but it's also like a, a Mr. Henry Smythe thing of like saying, Hey, right. That like, I imagine if I had like a camera following me or a GoPro or something. And for every time I say hello to a student, the number of times that there's no response. Um, and then I, I just actually, I'm keep, I just came from advisory. Right. So it, it just happened that like, I greeted my advisees and like there was hardly any response. And these are all students that I know really well. We spend a lot of time together. And I always say, you know, guys, it's like customary when someone <laughs> greets you to greet them back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking a lot about those kind of, um, I don't know if it's just like cultural ways that we interact with one another or the ways that we, in small ways that we kind of take care of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, that I don't always experience, and I, I don't know what that's about. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is that this year that seems to have changed? I don't think it's this year that it's changed. I think I'm just, like, talking about it more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I told you that I've noticed that, but I've also noticed, you know, you say, good morning, Miss Knapp, how are you? And yeah. then your student will say, what's up? Like. <laughs> yeah. I've noticed that a little bit too. Or do you get emails that say, "Hey, Mr. Scott," I get a lot of like, "Hey, Miss Nat." Oh yeah, but I, I <laughs> but beginning of the year that makes me so mad when yeah. I get, especially. I mean, I'm probably crazy, but the email thing I cover the first week on like you need to send the proper mm-hmm. email because like mm-hmm. I just can't deal with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd cover that and I did a competition with my advisory and I had them write me an email giving me updates on their year and then a ranking of who had the best email. Oh, nice. So they're still talking about that, about like, why did our, why did our juniors finish last? The the sophomores are saying, why did the juniors finish last? Why are you guys last on the email? And they're like, well, I use this comma splice and Mr. (laughs) Scott said that was, that was wrong. That's so good. I love that idea. Yeah. The, advi- the advisory, I've really tried to take more stock in this year because yeah. I think that that's a important amount of time, 30 minutes. You don't get too much time with those guys, but I think it's really, really important in relaying some of the messages that we hear at assembly that they yeah. might not always hear. And I understand why assembly is a tough time of day right after lunch. And, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk there that they might not catch. But I feel like advisory is really crucial. Mm-hmm. I like having it more often. Um, and I, when, before we moved to this new schedule, we had um, assembly before third period. And so if you taught third period, you could kind of address, you know, or talk about whatever happened in assembly that day. And that was something that I really valued as part of my like classroom kind of culture, right? Plugging into the like larger Gilman happenings. Um, so I, I really like to follow up on what's happening in assembly with my advisees. Mm-hmm. And I also, I, I'm constantly talking to students about assembly. And that's another thing that I observe um, that I'm, I'm not quite sure why um, 
the behavior in assembly is not Gelman upper school at its best. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm perplexed by that space and, and behavior in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe it's because this is, I mean, I'm trying to think because COVID, I don't, I can't even believe last year at this time. Were we in mass at this we time? We were in mass this time last year, right? Which is almost we uh, yeah. unbelievable. I just yeah. can't really yeah. I forget that or I block it out of my mind that I we know. were, were wearing mass last year. But maybe it's because they hadn't had the experience of being in that space before. I don't know. It could be. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember if I had was disturbed by this before COVID. Everything kind of blends together at this point. But, um, you know, just yesterday we had, uh, you know, a Bryn Mawr faculty member making an announcement at assembly, and then they were like, you know, whistling and kind of responses. And that's an egregious example of bad behavior. But I think, like, um, as an upper school, when we're together, we're not acting with, like, care and generosity towards each other or to the people in the front of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love to <laughs> see a situation where, like, everyone in our community has to, at some point, you know, stand in front of that room and present about something that they care about. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how that happens if that's like like our sister schools, like a required senior speech or what it is. But um, I think it's a real um, it, it makes me really anxious. Mm-hmm. It is not an enjoyable time of day for me. Yeah. I think that's a good idea because I don't think you really understand what it's like no. to yeah. be in front of a room until you actually have to. That's right. Especially on a day to day basis, like as a teacher. I remember, you know, playing lacrosse in college. We would always zone in on the the things that our coach did every mm-hmm. single day, like the little habits, the little mm-hmm. ticks that he did. And you know, we probably weren't respectful and made fun of those ticks. But thinking about it now, my students probably notice that I yeah. do the same little things every single day. It's just natural. Every human, if they had to get up in front of a group of people every single day, would do things that are repetitive and just you know, in line with their personality. That's what they do. And you don't understand that unless you have to do it. Right. Right. Um, And that's a hard room to stand up in front of, Mm -hmm. right, Um, under any circumstance. But I think most of the time when people are um, presenting, it is really about something that they care deeply about. And I I really admire the students who stood up in front yesterday, right, and talked about the election and tried to do it in, I think, as nonpartisan a way uh, possible. Um, and so I think that the more students, especially that do that, I don't know if that changes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There has to be a solution to, um, fostering positive behavior in the assembly mm-hmm. environment. That's not just from the top down right. telling yeah. you what to do, because I just don't think that would go over well, but I don't know. I've, I'm trying to do some point competition incentives with my advisory and reminding them, you know, I'm looking at you guys during assembly. If you're sitting up, you're going to get a point for that day. Some kind of competition incentive. And I don't know if that's right, but whatever it takes to just kind of sad when you look around and guys are asleep or leaning back. It's just everything that we talk about are such easy skills. I think so. And, um, you know, even what last week we had the dean from Dartmouth, right? The dean of admissions from Dartmouth, and it's like he's here at our school, and we are not kind of putting our best foot forward, right? Because he's addressing an audience of students who are who are checked out, or a lot of them are checked out. And I think we kind of did a good job at the end of that that there were students that asked really 
insightful questions, mm-hmm. which always makes me happy when that happens. Um, but you know, the the general demeanor is not one that's like welcoming or curious or engaged. It's just surprising for yeah. a school that's so, yeah. especially the college admissions that's right. person who's so we're so college focused and grade focused. Here he is. He pretty much told us every single, you know cliche or piece of advice that you really need i mean he went over every single thing that's that right you should consider when you apply to schools i don't know if i was a junior or senior i'd probably be taking notes there yeah, yeah. this is this is straight from the horse's mouth right, right here right um and even when we have high profile people you know that there is a an air of criticism from the students that i think is I, I don't know. I think it's hard to take too, right? Mm-hmm. Again, if we put ourselves in the in the shoes of the person standing in front of the room. So, so um, outside of assembly, what are the most positive, good things that you've seen in your classes or in the Gilman community this year? What has been really nice to see um, mm-hmm. after a period of you know being at home, at COVID? Yeah. Now we're fully back in action. What's what's been like the highlight of the school year so far for you? I have um, my sophomore class that meets um, third period even days is like very fun and energetic. And it's like a level of, um, I don't know, energy that I haven't encountered in the last couple of years because of masks and COVID and everything. So they are um, a real joy. Um, and if they listen, they're going to I don't know, use that as like, remember that you love us. <laughs> but um, I think like that kind of fun, I'm, I'm rediscovering a little bit. Like just today we acted out a scene from Macbeth and we were all around a big banquet table and we had Banquo's ghost hovering around and it was just lots of fun. Mm. Um, so that's that group is definitely um, a highlight. And I think all of our larger community events were just like people are around. Oh, when I walked outside last Friday and the whole band was playing, um, I thought that that was so incredible. And I looked around and so my, my sixth grader plays the flute and he was there playing. And then BJ's there on his, that was uh, awesome. on his trombone and yeah. um, I, I, in his football jersey. Right, um, and just kind of uh, in that moment, right, this kind of quintessential Gilman thing of uh, boys being students and athletes and artists and musicians. Mm-hmm. That was a highlight for sure. Yeah, I always think that's cool when someone is involved in the yeah. athletic competition yeah. going on, but then beforehand they're playing an instrument or they're singing the Star, right. Star Spangled Banner. Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, a lot of the sporting events have been pretty well attended and right. excited this year right yeah and I don't want to like you know necessarily like circle it all around athletics but I do think that there's a way that that's kind of our community is coalescing around those things in, in, a, in a different way than we have for the last couple of years it's cool mm-hmm. yeah awesome so uh what else are you excited about teaching this year what else is on the curriculum for you you got, yeah. got Macbeth Macbeth do, do yeah. you bring poetry into your classes at all um, I do a little bit more with seniors, like um, our next text is Claudia Rankin's Citizen, and we'll talk a little bit about prose poetry in there. Um, I, I A couple, right, a couple with um, sophomores as it relates to, like, the larger texts that we're studying. One of my sophomores today asked me if Macbeth was my favorite thing that we read throughout the year, and I think it's definitely in the top two or three. 
Um, but Frankenstein is coming up, which I always enjoy. Not necessarily like the text on the page, which can be difficult, but the conversations that we have mm -hmm. um, in class around kind of science and progress and the limits of progress is really fun. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, those are, those are the big things. But Shakespeare Festival mm -hmm. coming up um, between uh, Thanksgiving and winter break is always a highlight, too. That's exciting. Yeah. Great. Well, um, it sounds good. We're reading some Edgar Allan Poe right now oh, in my nice. classes. We read The Raven, which uh, I think is important because you've got the... Some people don't know. They live in Baltimore. They don't I know, know why right? the ravens are called the ravens. So Travesty. We have to go through you know, the whole... The whole the poem is not the most uplifting. It's, I mean, it's oh, all it's about not, grief right. and sadness and loss. and Yeah, but... That's why your team is called the Ravens. <laughs> and that's why when you go to the game, right, there are those Edgar, Edgar Allan and Poe, the different Ravens that are yeah. running around. I'm always like, did you notice that, guys? Yep. Yeah. Well, my th favorite thing is I give them, I, I say, if you guys go down to Poe's gravesite downtown and oh, take yeah. a picture, yeah. give you some extra credit because I think that's just a memory, you know? Right. You might not remember every single thing we talk about this year, but I think if you go with a couple of friends down to Poe's gravesite, you'll maybe remember my class one day. I just did that for the first time maybe two years ago. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. So um, any trips going on this year? Anything you, you are doing in your personal life, travel at all? I'm trying to decide whether to go back to Sewanee in the summer, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like the big thing, whether I'll go back to Tennessee for part of the summer and write some more poems. Um but nothing, nothing big planned. I'm trying to, again think about like the, you know, summer grants and mm -hmm. and what to do. How about you? What are you What are you gonna do? Bread loaf? Definitely bread loaf again. Um, I'm thinking about doing a, a trip. Maybe I, I had credit from British Airways because I was supposed to go visit my college roommate, the guy I was telling you about, who got hit with a hockey puck. Yeah, yeah. He was playing hockey in Denmark a couple of years ago, and I was gonna go visit him, and then. Omicron. I guess that was last year. Okay. Omicron hit like right when I was supposed to go. So I had British Airways points. So I just cashed them in and got a trip to uh, London in June before Breadloaf. So nice. We'll see if uh, we'll see if I can think of a grant, a good grant. I'm trying to think of maybe doing another elective next year. Oh, what do you want to do? Maybe something with modernism or. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I try to. I want to link it to England and yeah. British literature. Maybe could be cool. I've always Zadie liked Zadie Smith. Have you read Zadie Smith? I love Zadie Smith. Yeah. Yeah. I love Zadie Smith too. Well, that might be it. She's funny. She's, she's super funny. Yeah. And uh, I like Intimations, her book that she wrote during the pandemic. I just read a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What else have you read by her? Um, uh, N.W. Northwest, White Teeth, um, On Beauty. On Beauty is, I think, my favorite. Have you read that one? I haven't. I know it's in the library, though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Second plug for the Gilman Library. Yeah. What is that one about? Um, it is about a professor, an American. Uh, I think he's American and his wife is English or vice versa. And like kind of moving from England to Princeton. New Jersey mm -hmm. and um, kind of their relationship and their family relationship. It's really lovely. And I read it the summer I was um, in Oxford for Breadloaf. Um, I took like a modern British um, literature class when I was there. Oh, wow. Yeah. What was Oxford like for you? Oh, incredible. Was that your last year? Or was that? No, it was my first year, which is really foolish. Oh. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that, but it was really, really uh, 
a dream. Now, were you at Gilman when you did Breadloaf? No, it was when I was at Georgetown Prep. Yeah. Yeah. And you did it in four years or five I years? I did it in four years, which again, I wouldn't recommend, but just because of the way my life happened. Yeah. So there was one summer I took three classes and then I transferred one in. Mm-hmm. And the summer I took three classes, I was like, oh, well, um, I'll do the King James Bible class and War and Peace. Those were two you of the classes. And I was like, well, because they're each just one book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, was my, that was my thinking. What was your favorite class you took there? Um... That that um, contemporary British literature class was definitely like in the top, and then um, I took a poetry workshop class with Paul Muldoon. Um, when one of the summers I was in Vermont, that was really impactful. Yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited for that again. I uh, I audited a class last oh, yeah. summer. I just sat in on one because I was like, this is, you know, too interesting not to. Yeah. What was it? Uh, it was a, I guess it's an American studies course, but it was a mixture between art history, history, and mm-hmm. English. So we read, you know, we read Frederick Douglass and Benjamin Franklin. So I've been teaching some Benjamin Franklin nice. here this year, a little bit of Edgar Allan Poe, but we also looked at a lot of paintings in class, uh, early American paintings. And the guy who taught the class, Brian Wolf, is a professor at Yale and Stanford for a long time, and he's the nicest guy I think I've ever met in my life. And I was just like, Professor Wolf, can I just hang out and sit yeah. in on this class? And he was he was totally okay with it. So, I mean, you have so much time up there that why Might not? As well. Might, and might as is well. that what you talked about last week with your um, PD session? A little bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. I um. I, I've just been using a lot of paintings in the, so cool. in the classroom because I think it helps students see a little bit more clearly and work on analysis. Yeah. So I have them. I've, I usually use Edward Hopper, and mm-hmm. I like Edward Hopper a lot because his paintings are so open-ended. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually saw his exhibit in New York City, and yeah, uh, yeah just love his, his paintings. And um, so you look at the painting for a few minutes, and you just – as a class, observe everything yeah. that you see, which I think is an important exercise to do anyway, because we're talking about yeah. social media and TikTok, mm-hmm. Instagram. It's always just quick video, mm-hmm. next thing, quick mm-hmm. video, next mm-hmm. thing. And you're judging or you're, you're drawing conclusions so quickly that you're not actually looking closely and analyzing something at a deeper level. So I think just looking at a painting and as a class going through everything that we observe helps you see deeper into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I think translates to writing. hundred percent, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you're, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and there's a way that the students aren't quite making that connection yet, right? But, like, that skill of close reading is not just about, like, a, you know, a book text, mm-hmm. but, you you know, close reading lots of other texts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it takes a, a lot of time reading something to actually figure out how to imagine it or put it into mm-hmm. your head. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to do. And I, I find that I can't often describe it. Do you know when you watch a movie and the, the cliche, right, is like, well, it's not how I imagined it or the book is better. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't tell you what I imagined. I just know that, that that's, can, not, that's it. not it. That ain't it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's true. We did Great Gatsby this uh, first quarter. And I, for a while, didn't really like the movie with Leonardo mm-hmm. DiCaprio, the new one. Yeah. But I kind of like it now. I don't know why. I don't what, know why the change. Is it the, the amazing soundtrack? It does have an amazing soundtrack. It does have an amazing soundtrack. I don't know. It just, 
I guess I have read The Great Gatsby so many times at this point that it livens it up a little mm-hmm. bit. And I think at least the students get into the movie yeah. a lot. Yeah. Where they can they can put images to some of the more obscure passages that you read. Yeah. The Great Gatsby is fascinating, right? Because it's such an eminently teaching, teachable book that it's like hard to let go, right? Because it's like this is, it's, it, I don't know. There's so much there to offer to, to teach and discuss in class. Did you teach that usually early on in the year when you taught Great Gatsby? Um, I think it was later in the year. And when I taught Great Gatsby mostly, I think I taught it one year here at Gilman, but before... Uh, when I was at Georgetown Prep, American literature was 10th grade. Mm-hmm. So it was at the end, towards the end of 10th grade that we read it. Yeah. Hmm. What's your favorite book that you that you have in your curriculum? Like, what do you get excited about every year to teach? Mm. Do you have one? or? It might be Sing Unburied Sing. I, I mean, both of those books that you have in front of you, I'm really excited to teach because I haven't, I haven't entirely figured them out, you know, <laughs> um, in a way that I think is really good to um, invite conversations with students. So George Saunders has a new book out. Yeah. And it's sort of like this one, right? It's, Maybe. I think I was reading an article. There's an article with him in the in, uh, Time magazine. That just okay. Came out. And uh, he's talking about how I think it's about General Custer, mm. maybe the new book. Interesting. It's called Liberation Day or something. Yeah. But I like George Saunders because I um, – and I was doing, I forget what class I was taking. I was doing a class in college where he came up. And uh, maybe it was 10th of December we read. And I sent him an email because oh. I wanted to ask him a couple questions. And he hit me back like the yeah. next day. Yeah. He's he's really good with that. He's a very nice guy, it seems like. Well, and I think he's another one, like I talked about Ocean Vong, right, who's a, who's like a teacher. You know, like that's that's what he does. He teaches and he writes. But I think that's part of his identity. Hmm. Yeah. I didn't know that about Ocean Vong that he yeah. that he taught. Yeah, pretty fascinating. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. Beth. Am I am I like um, how many repeat guests have you had? You're, uh, we had Ned Emla the other day because before <sighs> the. Ah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good company. Yeah, for sure. So. <laughs> Thanks for having you're me. You're the second one in, so thank you for coming back. I'll come anytime. Yeah, appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Bye.